Well, it's hot in here. The sermon is only about three hours, so we're going to be fine. Um, no, uh, it's going to be a good morning. Uh, we got a lot to go through. We're going to do it in a really short period of time because I know we're all uh, sweating. So uh, let's pray before we get started this morning, and we will jump right in. God, um, and I just thank you so much uh, for this space. As we were praying uh, with the team before we started, uh, I just want to reiterate, I was struck with the fact that uh, the journey that this community has been on um, and the place that we're at. And uh, I, I feel so blessed to be here, to be a part of this, uh, to see you moving in this community and to see such a beautiful, just, there's no other way, it's just a swath of humanity. Um, it's a beautiful picture of, of who you are. So we thank you for that. And Lord, this morning as we, uh, as we dive into your word, I pray that you'd be with us. And um, amen. All right. So let's talk about this first to get this out of the way. Um, the first time I rode a bird scooter. <laughs> the first time was a glorious time. Uh, they started popping up on our street, and so I walked right outside, and I saw it for the first time, and I went up to it, and I saw that you could just wave your little magic wand, your phone, and, and you, could, you could sail off into the sunset. It was gorgeous. And, and soon, more and more started popping up all over the neighborhood, and I was like, this has become a real means of transportation for me. This is beautiful. Uh, but bird got a little too big for its britches, and then it came out with a new bird. So if you, see, if you see them, there's like the old OG birds, which are like the big steel frame. And those bad boys cook like 15 miles an hour. And I don't know why I need to go 15 miles an hour. I was walking everywhere I was taking these birds before I was on a bird. But anyway, we had to get to that 15 mile an hour mark. And they, they came out with these new ones. And the new ones peaked at 10. And I felt gypped, like drastically, drastically cheated because I didn't get that extra five miles an hour. So then onto the scene comes a little company called Lime. And Lime goes up to 17 miles an hour downhill, and it has a speedometer as if to say, look, we're better than bird. So I started riding limes, and my catchphrase was, death to bird, lime is life. Um, started riding limes a lot, and then on Monday, uh, hopped on a lime scooter after coming home from a delicious dinner at Cha-Cha Chicken. Life is beautiful. Uh, and then I hit a pothole. And the ironic part is, I was mad at the lime scooter, because I looked down at the speedometer, and it was only going. 10 miles an hour. I looked down, hit the pothole, and then realized quickly I was going faster than the scooter was going. <laughs> so I beat it by at least one mile an hour until I hit the pavement. Uh, broke my clavicle, which is a bone you don't know you had until you break it. So broke this, shoulders down. Um, but I was already planning on talking about Sabbath and about rest. Uh, and mid-flight from the Lime scooter, I realized, oh shoot, this is going to be a good sermon illustration. <laughs> uh, and then hit the pavement, and here we are. But seriously, it's caused forced rest. And literally, as cheesy as it is, a lot of times in life we are moving so fast that we only figure out how fast we're actually going when we crash. How many, when you were a kid, did you ever walk into a pole? This may be a lot of confession for me, but if you ever like walk into a pole or anything, you realize the pace at which you were walking was very quick once you hit that pole, right? Like that force is actually a lot more than you thought it would be. And I think just in our lives, in the way that we live them, we are going at a breakneck pace. So much so that it's going to hurt us, that we will inevitably end up to crash. So built into this beautiful Christian tradition is this idea of Sabbath, is this idea of rest, of taking one seventh of your week and literally devoting that to not work, 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 gain, 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 more, 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 scale, 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 but just actually stopping, pausing, and actually enjoying the gift that is ever-present around you. 
enjoying right where you are, even if that circumstance is not ideal, just understanding that God has blessed us in some way and that where we are is enough, that who we are is enough. Sabbath causes us to rethink the world. It's the most radical thing we do as Christians. Now think of a radical way to share your faith. Don't check your email after dinner. <laughs> and people will go, what are you doing? What's, there's something different about this man. It used to be like, he doesn't swear. Just don't check your email. People are going to go like, what's wrong with you? Or what's different about you? And you can go, oh, it's Sabbath. I don't do that after this point. Or on this day of the week, I don't actually work. I devote it only to just filling my life up with things that I enjoy, that I love, that can fill me up to the point that I can be a better human for the week to come. And I've learned a lot about rest this week as I'm not allowed to do anything. I actually proclaimed to Chelsea, I was like, I can't, I physically cannot exercise. They told me no. So I was like, this summer, I'm getting fat. <laughs> it's going to happen. Like, so it's forced rest. Um, I grew up in a Southern Baptist evangelical home. Welcome to group therapy. Uh, and in that home, and I grew up going to like Awana, and, and I was a pastor's son, so the lines between like church and home were really blurred. In fact, we were in the church almost as much as we were in the home. Like it was, you basically lived in the church and in the home, and on top of that, I was homeschooled for the first two years of my schooling, so it really was like that was my whole universe. Please pray for me, but that was the whole universe that I knew. Uh, and in that kind of tradition, the, the sneaky narrative, and they don't outright say it, but the sneaky narrative is Christianity is designed to kind of like pluck people from one team and get them on our team, right? Like your, your whole goal when you're taught in Sunday school are, are basically arguments to win an argument to then get someone on your team. And I've never experienced this in any other sort of faith tradition, but for ours, for some reason, we like rah-rah and shout when we realize that there's one of us, right? Like, well, he's a Christian, so I'm going to go over there. Like, it's the weirdest thing, but we always go like, yes, we got one on our team. So the idea is that you would go out and you would save people, right? And that's a beautiful concept, and people do need a savior, and I'm not, I'm not trying to thwart any of that. But the, the idea of I need to go out and save people kind of connotes this idea of like, I, I have a tally, and I'm counting how good I am based upon how many people I've gotten to pray this prayer. And usually when you would lead in that discussion, here's something that worked for years. I have no idea how it worked. But it, you would lead with, do you know where you're going to go when you die? If you died tonight, do you know where you're going to go? And for years and years and years, that worked. Because the people that were teaching this to me were very earnest, very honest people. And that worked for them. So I don't want to knock that at all. My best friend, Daniel Beck, his dad, Larry Beck, who's a very pragmatic, like, by-the-book kind of guy, did not grow up in a Christian family whatsoever. He stumbled upon one of those tracks, like one of those Christian like cards that said, like, do you know where you're going to die? And then it outlines sort of like the four tenets of our faith. And he found that card, and he literally said, hmm, all right, I'm a Christian now. Like, that's what changed him. And then, like, whole families now Christian. Like, kids are Christian. That's what flipped the switch. But I think we need to reorient that discussion just a little bit because I don't think that that approach is as relevant as it was. We are still in desperate need of a savior. But a lot of us, especially in Western society, are not fearing for our mortality like we used to. Try asking a millennial that very same question. Do you know where you're going to go when you die? And they will probably look at you and say, I'm more stressed out about where I'm going to eat dinner tonight. <laughs> right? Like, I don't know where I'm going to go to eat. Five stars, how many reviews? Right? Like, that, that's what we're more stressed out about. 
So I think a better lead, actually, in sharing our faith and actually proclaiming this radical way of life is actually to lean into this idea of a God who is crazy about rest. Because the true thing that's really slowly killing us all, you want to talk about mortality, is our constant need to get more, to scale more, to grow this. And if we're all really being honest with each other, we just let our shoulders down and sigh, that we're all really, really tired. Just tired. And it comes up especially in the summer because we're wired to think, like, I gotta go out of town, I gotta get this done, I gotta do this, I've gotta pack as much life as I can into these months. And before you know it, like you've gone on a huge vacation and you come back from that vacation and you're like, I need a vacation from that initial vacation. I need real, solid rest. How do we do that? What does that look like? And the answer is Sabbath. We're all so tired. When is it that we can just kind of throw our arms down and say, it's enough. It's enough. I have enough. I have enough in the bank account, I have enough blah, 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 I'm, I'm good at work, I'm, it's enough. It's enough. How do we begin to say it's enough? Last summer, I got to go on this really, like, just unbelievable trip, um, thanks to some family friends. We were able to go to London and then the south of France. Um, and in the south of France, I saw my first super yacht. <laughs> like, and if you've ever seen a super yacht, it's very hard to miss. Super yachts are these massive, mini cruise ships, some of them are as large as a cruise ship, um, and they're unbelievably expensive. Like kind of the peak in life, if you think about it, is to be like a yacht owner. So we went to this, we got on a small yacht, um, small, meaning like there was a little boat that popped out from it, uh, and then we went off to this island to go have lunch, and I'm thinking like, oh, okay, it's like a picnic lunch thing. No, this is like a private island in which like there's a prison that very famously like the man in the iron mask was imprisoned in. And it, that's what it used to be. Now it's just like a giant restaurant slash party on the beach, which that guy must have been like, well, I, can't, I would never think that that would become this. Um, we get there, and it's this gorgeous thing. And they're bringing out like these whole fish cooked on salt slabs. And it's like, oh my gosh. Like Literally, like I'm looking around, and it just was like, this is, this is heaven. This is, I've peaked. Like, it's never going to get better than this. There was a certain sadness to that peaking. There's no greater sadness than the line, this is the greatest day of my life, <laughs> right? Because after that, where, where do you go from here, right? Um, on that island, and, and it's so exciting, we're looking around, and I thought, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe people just, like, live like this. And so I did a little research, and I figured out, people don't live like this. Uh, super yachts, on average, cost about $12 million. That's on the low end, $12 million. And on top of that, it generally costs about 10% of the super yacht to maintain it each year. That's with like staff, fuel, all the costs that it takes to like dock it and redock, all of that stuff. So you're thinking about like if you bought a really cheap super yacht, they're having a super yacht sale and you get it for 10 million, you're gonna be spending a million dollars a year just to keep that thing afloat. Now, if you're spending that much money and it's that cool of a thing, you would think you would be on that bad boy constantly. Nope. The sad truth is that in France, the average $12 million superyacht only gets taken out 10 days a year. 10 days a year. In the US, it's a little bit better, because we know how to party. It's two <laughs> weeks out of the year per $12 million superyacht. Two weeks. Two weeks and 10 days. Superyachts are actually the most underutilized ships 
on the ocean. It's crazy. So if you think about it, it's actually smarter to be the captain of these super yachts because you're going to spend more time on the super yacht. I think we should be living our lives a little bit more like the captain, right? But here's the deal. Our faith, the way that we walk with Jesus, if we're using all of these beautiful tools for life that he gives us, if we're following him but we're not taking a rest, if we're not doing a Sabbath, it's literally the equivalent of like owning a super yacht and only taking it out 10 days a year. We should be more bold and take advantage of this system of rest, the system that says slow down and enjoy what you have. Slow down and be right here. And you don't have to be a super yacht owner or a billionaire for this principle to work. Did you know that the average person sees only 11 sunsets in their lifetime? 11 sunsets. That's like the sun physically going down over the horizon, actually seeing that sunset. Only 11 times. We need to spend more time slowing down, pausing, reflecting, and moving forward. The story of Moses, we tell the story all the time of the burning bush. It's only a miracle because Moses slowed down enough to see it. That he was in a place where he could actually walk up to that bush for long enough, out of the stresses of the day, out of the herd that he was tending, to go and pay attention. You don't live that kind of life. You don't respond that way unless you're actually living in a rhythm of rest. And we can get really nitpicky about what that rest looks like and what not to do and what to do. And that's, that's a lot of the problem when you get into the Old Testament. There are all of these laws that kind of prevent you from literally doing anything on the Sabbath. Even picking up a tool is against the Sabbath. And it gets too legalistic. But the truth is, the heart behind that law is that you are called to rest as hard as you are called to work. That we should be hard resters. That one-seventh of our week, and that's not a lot, but it is if you think about what, what do you devote one day of your week to at all, right? One full day is a hard thing to commit to anything, let alone nothing, right? But the fact that we're literally called to that one day of rest should give your inner teenager like a glory shout, right? You have to rest. You have to pause. You have to calm down. We talk about this every time we talk about um, Sabbath, but it's always good to mention, and I want to put it up here. Do we have the Ten Commandments slide there, David? All right, so built in right here, number four is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we know all the rest of them, right? Like, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord. I won't read them all down. Um, but most of these are givens, right? Like, do not murder. Yes. Okay, we get that one. Uh, do not steal. I, okay, I got it. Uh, do not covet. That seems healthy. But then you get to number four, and it's like, take a day off. And you're like, wait, excuse me? This is only one of two commandments that is not a shall not, if that makes any sense. All the rest of them are you shall not. This is an additive command. This is a positive. It's to add to. It's to say you shall rather than you shall not. And that's pretty revolutionary for any deity, right? Usually they're holding a lightning bolt ready to strike us. This one is saying, I want to give you rest. And the reason for that is because these people who are getting these laws for the very first time have just come out of a system where they don't get to control when they get to rest and when they get to work. They were slaves. So it was up to Pharaoh when you get to rest, and it was up to Pharaoh when you were working. And most of the time, you were just working. 
You might get some time off just to sleep or an evening meal, but you'd be working from sunup to sundown. So what God is doing in this moment, what Moses is doing in this moment, is a direct affront to the ways of Pharaoh. And if we take that for us, and this is important if you relate that to us, what God is doing with this command is a direct affront. If it's a direct affront to Pharaoh, it's a direct affront to empire. And in our case, what God is doing with this commandment is a direct affront to empire, to culture, to what we're living in in everyday life. It's to say, like, no, the thing that's going to set you apart is that I want you to rest. I want you to be whole. I want you to be healthy. And I want you to thrive and not just survive. I want you to rest. And it's a radical notion. And the crazier part about this Ten Commandments thing is if you notice the numbering, that's where we'll get a little nerdy, uh, these first four, the first three, are all to deal with you and God, right? Us and God. This is our relationship with God. And he makes it very clear, like, I don't want you to have any idols. I don't want you to worship any other gods, all of that kind of stuff. So this is like how you are in relationship with God. And then if we go from five down, honor your father and mother down, these are all how we are in relationship with other human beings. So this is literally like how I deal with you and how we can live in a better society, in a better way with each other. Now notice that number four really has nothing to do with the us-to-us relationship or the us-to-God relationship, but it is literally the bridge between the two. Without this one, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other is torn. It's this idea of pausing and staying right where you are and reflecting in God's grace and goodness that we're able to actually live lives with each other. That we're not working ourselves so hard that we're ready to just get at each other's throats, right? This is the bridge between our relationship with God and our relationship with us. I'm gonna say something very provocative this morning, and I know it's summer, and I know we all just went on amazing trips or are about to go on amazing trips, but here's something really, really important uh, for us all. Vacation is different than Sabbath in a really large way. Sabbath, if we're, Sabbath is enjoying and living in what God has given you in the present moment. It's saying, I'm going to stay right where you are. In, in old, uh, old ancient Judaism, and to continue today with Hasidic Jews and Orthodox Jews, you're not allowed to drive on the Sabbath. And then, well, obviously, in ancient <laughs> Judaism, you weren't allowed to drive on the Sabbath. Um, but you weren't allowed to walk further than a certain distance or assert yourself further. And what that's designed to do is keep you right where you are. That is a radical notion. It's to say, no, 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 you're not allowed to go, 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 go. I don't want you in a different state. I don't want you in a different country. I need you to be right here for this Sabbath thing. Because if we're not, and we're always going somewhere, and we're always out of time, and we're always go, 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 push, 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 we're not sitting in the blessing that God has already given us. We're not looking around and saying, this is enough. What I have is enough. Where I am is enough. And man, even if it's close to nothing, I am blessed with right where I am. What I have is enough. And I think that is incredibly hard in a city like Los Angeles where we're always thinking that we have to achieve more, gain more, have a bigger place, drive a nicer car, all of that. Sabbath waves a flag and opposition to all of that and just says, no, 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 what you have and who you are, more importantly, is already enough. You don't need to keep going. 
So in fact, when we try and fill that Sabbath time with time away, we're actually refusing to see the gifts that God has given us right now. And there's a theological word for that, and it's fantastic. It's called a churl. <laughs> so if you are a person who refuses the celebration or refuses a gift, in theological terms, you are called a churl. So the next time someone refuses to join the party, call them a churl and tell them you learned it at church. A churl is this idea of someone who refuses a gift that is given or refuses to join the party. The most famous churl in all of the Bible is the older son from the prodigal son story we told last week, which is the guy who looks at the party and, he, and looks at his dad and he says, he can't believe you're throwing a party. And the dad is like, yes, but the party is being thrown. All of this is yours. Why don't you just come in and join the party? And he refuses to join the party. A churl is someone that cannot jump into something that is going on and receive a good gift. There's one story in the Bible that Jesus tells that is so packed full of churls, we can't ignore it, and it's the, uh, the story of the wedding feast. And this is going to be a little lengthy, but we have the, the text here. Do we have that, David? Fine, I'll just tell. Okay, cool. Um, so he's talking to the Pharisees as he tells this story. Jesus responded by speaking again in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding party for his son. He sent his servants to call those invited to the wedding party, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent other servants and said to them, tell those who have been invited, look, the meal is all prepared. I've butchered the oxen and the fattened calf. So let's, let's just stop right there. Sorry, David. Let's just stop right here for a second. The story of the prodigal son describes this enormous feast, right? Like it's a gangbusters party because this son of mine was dead and now alive. What this story is doing, and it's told not far after it, is actually like triple downing on that party. Because in ancient times and right now, if you kill a fattened calf, it is enough to feed your block, right? In, in that time, it was literally enough to feed the village. In fact, if you ever see fattened calf in scripture, it literally means like there's a party a coming and the whole neighborhood is invited because there's no way to store this food. We have to eat this food. It's fleeting, it's present, and we need you here now. Now, that was one fattened calf. This says, I've butchered the oxen, plural, and the fattened cattle, plural. This king is throwing a royal bash. And we all sat through that royal wedding nonsense. We understand what's going on here. This is an enormous thing, huge. I'm sorry, Andrew, I'm, I'm British bashing again. <laughs> all right. Um, the oxen and the fattened cattle, we can keep moving. This is a huge party. Now everything's ready. Come to the wedding party. But they paid no attention and went away, some to their fields, other to their businesses, and the rest of them grabbed his servants, abused them, and killed them. This is where this takes a weird turn. The king was angry, obviously, uh, and he sent his soldiers to destroy those murderers and to set their city on fire. King does not like a refused invitation. Um, then he said to his servants, the wedding party is prepared, but those who were invited weren't worthy. Therefore, go to the roads on the edge of town and invite everyone you find to the wedding party. Can we go back one slide, David? I'm sorry. So let's pause here so we can just unpack this as we go. Um, now, here's how an ancient invitation would work. And this, this line, now everything's ready, is actually really, really important. An ancient invite, or wedding invite, was in two parts. The first part would go out like a save the date. And so these people who were invited had already RSVP'd yes. Because he's saying, go out and tell those who have been invited. So they've already said, yeah, I'm going to come. So like, in, this is the most Los Angeles thing you can find in all of scripture. What these people have done have said, yes, I'll come to your party until I get a better offer, right? What they're doing is they're saying yes, because if you refuse a royal wedding invitation, that's grounds to be thrown in prison. That's serious stuff. So you're not gonna say no, but 
when the actual wedding date rolls around and you really don't want to go, oh, look what happened. Some of them went to their fields and their businesses. They didn't come because they had work. Both the fields and the businesses would be where people would actually go to make a living, to earn, 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 make more, more, more. And so if you are this, this peasant going to this party and you have to work to feed your family or whatever, you're taking time out to do that, you're going to think, my king will be proud of me because I'm going to be working harder. But the king in this story, which is an allegory for God, shocker, is not proud of that. In fact, he can't understand why these people are going to put work above his son's wedding feast, above the party that is already being thrown. They're all a bunch of churls. So we're moving on. Now everything's ready. Come to the wedding party. But they paid no attention. Went away. Sorry, we already read that. Uh, we already read this one too. Sorry. Fine. It's the wedding party. Then those servants went to the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. There are evil people at this wedding. The wedding party was full of guests. Now when the king came in and saw the guests, he spotted a man who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? But he was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, tie his hands and feet and throw him out, uh, throw him out into the farthest darkness. People, there will be gnashing, weeping and grinding of their teeth. Many people are invited, but few people are chosen. So there's a lot to unpack in this in terms of work and rest. Why is it that the king in this story walks up to someone and says, you're not wearing wedding clothes? Is this a dress code issue, right? Was this black tie only and they showed up in a t-shirt? What's going on here? The really cool part about this is that in that time, during that second RSVP part, if you were a king and you were wealthy enough, you would send your servants out to tell them that now is the time, the food is ready, it's been prepared, it's here, it's ready to eat, ready to go. Throw on these wedding clothes and they would bring a wedding garment so that no one would feel lesser than anyone else at that party. So you couldn't wear your Gucci shoes and someone else was wearing their shoes from Payless, right? There is no discrepancy here. We're all going to be dressed in awesome free tuxedo. Here, put on these wedding clothes. And so these people, these people who didn't deserve to be at this wedding at all, but were actually the people who were not working and who were able to respond, are thrilled to throw on this wedding garment. They were probably out toiling in the field. They were, they were probably on the streets. They were probably hurting. And this king comes to him and says, I'm throwing a wedding feast, and it's ready, and it's fleeting, and it's going to go bad. So I need you to come right now, in the present moment, and understand this gift. Come, feast. And here, here's this free tuxedo. Put it on and be a part of my family. Because when you sat down at table with anyone in that time, you were their family. It was like the Olive Garden. When you're here, you're family, right? They would sit down. They would be family together. You were, in a sense, almost made new. So when he finds this one person that's not wearing the free tuxedo, he walks up to him and he says, what, friend? And he says, friend, like, friend, I'm trying to help you here. What, why didn't you put on the wedding garment? And the fact that the man is speechless, most scholars point to as the fact that this is a direct act of defiance. In other words, and we can all relate to this, I will not be a charity case. Because if he wasn't wearing the free tuxedo, what was he wearing? His work clothes. 
He would have been sitting there in his spoiled work clothes as if to say, no, I've worked hard in my life and I earned a seat at this table. And what God in that moment does, not very lovingly, <laughs> declares him a churl and throws him out the room. Because what that guy did, was didn't, he didn't understand the gift of grace. What this comes down to is that grace is the most important part. That we're all given that free tuxedo. The grace is there. The feast is there. It's here. You're invited. Come. Be a part of this. But when we come with our own notions of how we get into the party and, no, I've worked hard, so I earn this, and I'm a good person, so I should get this, all of that has to go out the window. There's no place for it at the table. And there's no place for it at this table. Coming to this table every week is a representation of we're not going to get it perfect. That's not the goal. The goal is to throw on that free tuxedo and come and hang. Come to the feast. Come to the party. What God creates in this moment when we come to the table and to the feast is this in-between moment where we can rest, where we reflect on what God has done for us, what he's doing. It's a space that's somewhere in between. And this notion is described nowhere better than our good friend Winnie the Pooh. Do we have that, um, that slide of Pooh Bear? If we could just turn all the lights down, Dave, that'd be awesome. We can see that. Awesome. All right, here's Winnie the Pooh. There's Christopher Robin. This is actually one of the earliest sketches uh, that would become the Disney version of, of Winnie the Pooh. Uh, before that, Winnie the Pooh was called Edward Bear. And Edward Bear uh, is in between the top and the bottom of the stairs. And this sketch is actually very, very, very important because it's in this space on the staircase that Winnie the Pooh actually came to life or that Edward the Bear came to life with all of his friends and all of his adventures. Because A.A. Milne, who would uh, tell these tales to his son, Christopher Robin, they would sit in between the stairs, which was a huge, beautiful metaphor for not in bed yet and not at the morning to start the bustle of the day, and it's not at the end. It's a space in between. And this space in between is where these characters came to life. Somehow, in these spaces in between the stairs, that's where things come to life. That's where we reflect on what's beautiful and whimsy comes out and we start telling stories. In between the stairs is where we actually live our life. And it's a beautiful space. And he wrote two poems about this space from two different perspectives. And I'll let you guess which one we have most of the time. But do we have the first poem there, David, right after that? OK, this is by AA. And it says, here is Edward Bear coming downstairs now. Bump, bump, bump on the back of his head behind Christopher Robin. It is, as far as he knows, the only way of coming downstairs. But sometimes he feels that there really is another way. If only he could stop bumping for a moment and think of it. How much are we bump, bump, bumping down the stairs, grinding it out? And if we could only just pause and think, maybe there's a better way of doing this. Maybe there's a better way, but that way is only going to be found if we can pause. Here's another one for the perspective of Christopher Robin, who has a little more clairvoyance. It says, halfway down the stairs is a stair where I sit. There isn't any other stair quite like it. I'm not at the bottom. I'm not at the top. 
So this is the stair where I always stop. Halfway up the stairs, it isn't up, it isn't down, it isn't the nursery, it isn't town. And all sorts of thoughts run round my head. It really isn't anywhere, it's somewhere else instead. It's somewhere else instead. Winnie the Pooh, come on. <laughs> it's somewhere else instead. When God tells us to honor the Sabbath, he says one other thing. He says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. And this notion of it's somewhere else instead is that idea of holiness. Something separate, something other, something unattainable. It's holy. It's set apart. And holy, kadosh in Hebrew, is this word that is used more than any other word in the ancient scriptures to describe God. Whenever we look at a descriptor before they talk about God, kadosh, holy, this idea of something set apart, unattainable, somewhere else instead, that's what we get as a descriptor for God. And the very first time that kadosh appears in the scripture, the very first notion of holy set apart of somewhere else instead of this in-between space comes out of Genesis 2-2. And that is the, uh, do we have that slide there, David? Yeah, perfect. Genesis 2, uh, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work and uh, he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all of the work of creating that he had done. That's the very first time we see the word kadosh, holy, in scripture. The very first time. It's a day that God models for us what he wants us to attain. A day where he created everything and he just sits in the blessing and says, look at all the good that I have made. And that good that creation includes you. This is a day where God declares all of this, it's enough. It's enough. You are enough for me. And the, the question that beckons us to answer is, won't you join me in believing that about me? That I am enough for you. That you are enough. And that we're both made of the same holy stuff. If we can begin to think like that, that's, that's world changing. Sabbath could change the world. Rest, doing nothing, could change everything. We just have to have the courage to lean into that. And that's a hard thing to do. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for rest. Thank you for Sabbath. Thank you for um, your word and, and what you open up to us. And God, as we, as we approach the table this morning, I pray that we could take that notion of this in-between, holy, separate space, and we take our time and we pause and reflect on all the blessings and all the goodness that's already right here in the present moment. Or even in the hardship, what can this teach me right here in the present moment? Amen.